This is Safe, Stable, and Affordable, a Midwest housing podcast produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, I'm Matt Hauge, the Trust Fund's Outreach Director. In this episode, we explore housing subsidies, which are the public investments that make so much housing affordability possible in our community. We'll explore some of the challenges that using available funds present, as well as the unique opportunities available today through special and emergency spending related to the COVID-19 pandemic. As this episode was recorded, multiple governments and organizations were looking at the best ways to utilize funding under the American Rescue Plan Act. Next time on the podcast, our keynote speaker, Shane Phillips, will join me to answer audience questions that came up from the symposium event and offer his concluding thoughts. But for now, here's Jennifer Cooper with Bankers Trust to introduce our panelists. So we are the, the last group of the day, um, and I, I did um, have an opportunity to read Shane's book, highlight it, outline, put little tabs in it. Um, eternally grateful we're not from California, and we're not California, um, and, and that, you know, heeding some of those warnings kind of makes your head spin with as many ideas and policies that he has in that book. Um, I think that uh, before we get into our, our you know, questions and things. Um, I think in central Iowa and really Iowa statewide, um, we are in a fortunate position to have access, communication, long-term relationships and ability to work together, both privately and publicly um, to get things done. So I do think we have the ability to take the opportunity that some of this federal funding is given us and do it the right way. Um, so with that said, uh, we'll, we'll start into questions. Um, our first panelist is Abby Gilroy, who's the Executive Director of Neighborhood Development Corp. Um, and I had the opportunity to be on Abby's board several years ago. Um, so does great work. And um, Abby, you've uh, worked in a lot of areas of Des Moines um, that has underperforming commercial space um, that have been, you know, blighted nuisance properties. And I guess what opportunities do you see to still convert this type of property into housing? And more importantly, how do you pay for it? That's what we're here to talk about. <laughs> That's a big question. So, um, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit and this adaptive reuse concept isn't new to this industry. You know, we've been kind of working on that concept for, for years in the past. And we started to see that come up in our market with the bigger box stores. They were happening um, when our shopping habits changed. We started going online for shopping. All these big box stores started to downsize or were eliminated altogether. So our shopping malls, you're seeing that now, even in Des Moines or in Polk County, we have three that are being repurposed. Um, you look at the larger Best Buys that have downsized and then they've got all this space available and it hasn't really been conducive to housing yet. You know, those are large, vast footprints. You can line the perimeter maybe with some apartments, but then you've got this large core inside that hasn't really made sense for housing. Since the pandemic happened, we're starting to see some hotels that have come on the market. We're seeing churches come on the market, smaller infill type properties that could be converted to housing. And we've actually had some developers come to us at our organization asking us, how do we get this done? How do we pay for this? How do we get these properties under control? And so we're starting to work on those projects now. And, um, realizing that there is potential for this. This might be a good way to get units done for $70,000 a door instead of $250,000 a door. But with everything, our hurdles, right? If that was the magic bullet, everybody would be doing it. But we've got hurdles that we don't know how to navigate yet, the valuations that come from this, and then financing that. Um, and then zoning, right? Making these buildings code compliant now when they've been hotels for so long. Now they're going to be housing units. It's just a different zoning code. So um, we're going to have to work with with our local governments to to overcome 
those challenges, but um, we do have programs that can assist with, with the funding for, for those units. So, um, and those programs already exist. So I would say we will still access programs that are out there, but we do need to overcome um, some of the challenges that, that may arise from this. Yeah. Um, you know, recently I've seen um, some light on in budgets for a house that nine months ago um, cost 270000 and now we're well over 360000 Same home. Um, and this is after value engineering, after trying to work through um, some zoning changes um, on garages, those kind of things. So the need, the gap is just growing. That is. Um, and you have a lot of experience with infill projects. Um, do you see... Um, greater partnerships with local governments, um, you know, the private sector, what, what other things are you working on to try to get more funding into filling these gaps that we already had that have now exploded? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned it, that we, we are working in a community that is so accessible. We can get to our city leaders, our electeds, our Polk County supervisors. We can get to our leaders in the state to ask for these changes in the programs that exist. Um, with all these projects, we have to stack sources or they don't work. That naturally from that naturally occurs a partnership and that partnership is only successful if everybody in it is transparent and that there's a balance between entitlement and constraints so that if one side gets lopsided than the other, it's just it defeated. The project's done. It's defeated. So once that partnership can prove that it's successful, we need to start accessing the programs. But the programs have to maintain flexibility. They cannot become so rigid that nobody wants to use them. Dollars just won't get deployed. They need to be accessible. They need to be easily navigated. Um, we need education. We need technical assistance out there for people that just don't know how these pro programs work. How do you even start? You miss one box, checking one box. You've disqualified yourself from funds. They just need to remain flexible and accessible um, so everyone can use them. Um, State of Iowa has tax credit programs, Brownfield, Workforce, Litech. Polk County has Polk County Housing Trust Fund, of course. Um, other grants, the city's got TIF and tax abatement, home funds, uh, blitz on blight dollars. But now we're starting to see the corporate partners coming in. There was a flyer out there about the employer-assisted housing. Um, DMR DMRC here locally is wanting to get involved and is interested in this housing piece. So all the programs are there and bringing the right partnerships together and accessing the programs appropriately it should be successful. Yeah. And DMRC, for those who don't know, is a yeah. group of 20 or 25 local corporations that include all the names you would think of with between Casey's, Meredith, Wells Fargo, you know, um, the Ruans, everyone is involved. And to get them to be interested in housing needs and the understanding of how that impacts our economy, you know, across our area um, is a big win that Abby has been able to work on. So I appreciate that. So we'll, we'll move on to Lisa uh, Krabs, who is um, the federal funds administrator for the city of Des Moines. Um, one thing I've learned um, even more so than I had experienced in the past is just the impact that the rules from federal funds cause on the problems of delivering those funds, right? So um, I guess we look to the leases and Terry Rizankis of the world to say, you know, here's all this federal money and here's their rules. What can we do locally um, to make it more accessible, make it work better in our community? Um, and so, you know, one way to get funding is to be an entitlement city. So it sounds as if uh, there's a few other communities in the metro. Des Moines has been an entitlement city for a number of years through HUD. Um, it, you know, there's some other metro areas that are going to be able to be qualified. Um, you know, how can we help those communities become prepared to utilize and, and administer those federal funding? 
Yeah. So, um, one of the first things I would suggest a city do before they jump full full force into federal funds is maybe to access some of the funds um, through either the state or agencies like the Federal Home Loan Bank. Um, both the Iowa Finance Authority and the Iowa Economic Development Authority have federal funds. So if um, if if you're thinking and toying with becoming an entitlement city. Maybe first you you focus on one program, see what your capacity is, see how it is to administer it, see what kind of fun regulations, you know, come at you and and if you can handle those. Um, So that would be my first like kind of a baby step into the federal funding atmosphere. Um, The second recommendation is say you do want to jump in um, working regionally as much as possible. So, um, the city of Des Moines does have entitlement funds, but also the city of West Des Moines has, um, community development block grant funds, which are also federal. And so we were able to partner with them to do our fair housing assessment. That is one of the requirements, um, every few years. So another way to look at partnerships is it seems like a lot of the, um, suburban communities might be able to think about a home consortium, where, um, you know, a group of, of them partner together to become one entity under the under the eyes of the federal government in terms of allocating home dollars, which are the affordable housing federal program. Um, and then third, kind of in that same vein, you know, thinking regionally and, and talking to your peers. Um, so, yeah, like the city of Des Moines, we're here. We're happy to talk to any any groups or any cities that are thinking about it. Um, but also there's a good peer network with the National Community Development Association. So in terms of accessing either tools or um, templates, there's plenty of cities across the United States and here, right, that um, have already kind of been doing this. So it's it's not hopefully that scary. There are resources and places to access. And of course, HUD. HUD has obviously plenty of templates and whatnot. But um, yeah, so those are my three main recommendations. See if you can baby step into it with one program first. Um, Two, work regionally wherever possible. And then three, um, that peer-to-peer relationship and networking is very helpful. Yep. Thank you. Um, And then you know, it's one thing to get cities to know how to use those and monitor and administer federal funds, but developers are often um, afraid of using those programs. I mean, if you're a developer can make build a market rate project and not have to deal with the federal regulations on, on your funding, um, that's a hurdle to get over to, to, I guess, entice developers or more developers into building new housing, right? Um, so what can we do locally to make those pro- you know programs easier to navigate and How do we help those folks want to try to use those programs and create affordable housing? Sure. I understand um, that they can seem daunting and rigorous and um, using a little more fluid funding is always more advantageous, obviously. But um, I think with the city and I can probably say other entities that want or have these funds, just talk to us. Right. So we are accessible as Abby said, you know, just, just give us a call or an email or whatever. We'll set up a meeting. We'll talk through your project. We're pretty straightforward. I feel like, um, you know, we can tell pretty soon off the bat if it's going to work, if it's not going to work or kind of what the, 
what the strings are going to be. And there are, there are strings. Okay. Let's just be, be frank about it. Um, there are regulations, but, um, what I will say is it's really our job to make sure that those hoops are jumped through and that we check all our boxes. Um, so we want the developer to come in. We want affordable housing. We want these projects, these development projects to come through. So it really is our job to make sure that those boxes are checked. We'll work with you to make sure they happen. Um, and I would say a lot of the hoops and things we ask for our files are really best practices anyway. So if you're coming in and you're saying, well, I don't, I don't have this or that, maybe some of that's just the regulations. Okay. And, and we'll work with you. We'll do an environmental review. We'll check that. But really, um, you should be checking to see if a site's going to have some environmental hazards, right? You should already be checking that. You should be checking, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, is it going to go into the red financially? Um, what do my rents look like? If you're going to do an affordable housing project, we know they don't always pencil out immediately. So are you looking at those things anyway? And that's kind of um, where I would say a lot of these things, as rigorous as they sound, should be considerations regardless. So, yep. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the rising cost of construction um, is, is kind of a heartbreaker in the midst of all the additional funding that we've been, um, you know, really, as Sidoris would say, the, the generation changing funding um, and what we could have done with that, you know, three to five years ago compared to what we're faced with now in terms of the cost gap that that has been created in the market that we really don't have a lot of control over. Um, so Terry Rosanke uh, manages the housing programs um, for IFA and these the turbulence, um, especially for the housing tax credit pro you know, projects that you know, the cost increases are roughly anywhere from 20 to 35 percent for all the projects who back in 2021 got credits. And all of a sudden there is no way to increase rents to fill that gap. So where does the additional money come from? Um, federal rules causes some issues, but I guess I'll let Terry talk about um, the consequences of that and, and what we've had to, you know, I guess pivot being the word of the day, um, <laughs> pivot with with the monies we have to try to fix that issue. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, my first boss uh, when I started at the Iowa Finance Authority. She used to tell audiences a lot that what you need to know about the low-income housing tax credit program is it's overly complex, it's administered by the IRS, and it is definitely not for the faint of heart. And I think that has never been more true than, than during the pandemic and, the, and what we've all been living through the last couple of years. Um, so a little bit of context. So... The low-income housing tax credit program provides a tax credit that the owner uses to offset their federal tax liability for a 10-year period. So our agency, um, IFA, we uh, award tax credits to housing developers. In turn, the housing developer uh, sells those tax credits to investors. And then the developer uses that cash that's generated from the sale of the tax credits to help uh, pay for the development cost of the project. Uh, and so what has been happening uh, during the, the pandemic, you have all, just kind of the perfect storm of, of forces uh, with um, the supply chain bottlenecks and uh, uh, labor shortages and then uh, inflationary rising costs on everything from materials uh, to labor and everything in between. And as Jenny mentioned, that has pushed the, the pushed the cost of projects that were already in the pipeline that had already been awarded those tax credits, um, you know, as much as 30% and, and more. Um, and so it was really, uh, 
negating the the benefit of the tax credit in the first place due to those due to those tax costs. And so, our tax credit team is starting to get calls of um, you know with questions like, how do you return? tax credits. And that is, that is never a good sign, um, <laughs> or nor happy, happy buzz coming out of my tax credit team friends. So, um, so as, as Jenny mentioned, it, it really, um, the, the governor, uh, last fall had, uh, announced, uh, historic, um, uh, $100 million investment, um, using state and local fiscal recovery funds into, um, affordable housing efforts across the state. And one of those programs was, uh, $45 million, uh, in those state and local fiscal recovery funds toward, um, new tax credit unit development. But again, uh, keyword pivot, um, given the, the, issues um, that were making existing deals in the pipeline infeasible, um, that that $45 million really had to be pivoted uh, to uh, provide grants to uh, fill those um, gaps and um, with the rising construction costs and budget costs uh, on those deals that hadn't yet been completed. So just to make those deals feasible, um, we had to pivot those funds. And, and you did hear me correctly when I said grant, uh, because uh, unfortunately, when the Treasury released the uh, final rules in January for the state, uh, for those uh, fiscal recovery funds, um, there's no ability to provide those as tax credits or as low interest loans as you might have expected in order to not impact the eligible basis of the tax credit project. So, Providing that as grant is kind of a vicious cycle and just generates, creates the need for even more subsidy. Um, so, but you play the hand you're dealt. And so, um, in addition to shoring up existing deals in the pipeline, using that $45 million in fiscal recovery funds, uh, IFA has also approved a 50% increase to the tax credit cap uh, per unit on the tax credit cap. Um, and that will be for uh, the, the upcoming 2022 tax credit funding round. So, uh, you know, it's really kind of, as I said, you play the hand you're dealt and it's a matter of salvaging um, as, as many new units as possible, um, even though I think... Um, you know, the, uh, it, it was a pivot. Um, and, uh, we all know that, uh, the housing, um, state's housing forecast, we need 61,000 units by 2030. Um, so we're going to save as many new units as we possibly can. Yeah. And, and 50% increase in that cap, just historically understand that's never really gone up more than 5% maybe ever. Yeah. Um, so that's a big deal that, that it was recognized how much that was needed to make 22, projects happen. Um, and, and really the, the mantra is kind of some housing is better than zero because if we don't use that, I don't think any of those projects could likely go forward. So anyway, sorry, Terry. So the, um, uh, the other part, um, as part of the hundred million dollar, um, you know, uh, pronouncement by the governor last fall. Um, there was a minority home ownership pilot program. Um, and if you could kind of explain what that's seeking to accomplish and how that's working and yeah. So from 2017 to 2019, uh, approximately 12% of all uh, home loans in Iowa were made to minority home buyers. So that's a number that um, our team, single family team tracks, has tracked historically. Um, but uh, when the fiscal recovery funds um, became available, um, uh, we also started talking about, I mean, conversations and uh, we've had more and more conversations in the last couple of years, especially about uh, the historic impact of that redlining has had um, as 
um, and the racial uh, wealth gap. And uh, really kudos to the Polk County Housing Trust Fund, who, who has been a real leader in driving that um, conversation and bringing it to the forefront. Um, so when the fiscal recovery funds became available, uh, we saw uh, an opportunity to propose a, uh, a pilot initiative that uh, we hope will help break down barriers uh, to minority homeownership. Uh, so um, it launched on February 10th. The governor allocated an initial $1 million investment in those fiscal recovery funds uh, to the Minority Down Payment Assistance Program. Uh, it will provide $5,000 uh, down payment and closing cost grants to assist 200 uh, minority home buyers across the state. Uh, it does have to be used uh, in conjunction with an Iowa First Home Mortgage product. product. So the, um, the applicant would go to one of uh, Iowa's, IFA's 400 participating lenders across the state uh, and apply for a mortgage. Um, they com would complete a self-attestation uh, that they are a member of a um, minority group as defined by state and federal law. Uh, the, there are, uh, income, uh, income limits and purchase price limits. The income limits, uh, generally range from 79,500 to 114,655. So, uh, and the purchase price limit is 311,000 in a non-targeted area and goes up in targeted census tracts. So those are all available on, um, IFA's website. So, um, they vary by county, and so you want to look at that. Um, uh, the home has to be occupied by the buyer as a primary residence within 60 days of closing. Uh, there's um, uh, and the pilot program will be available until the funds are exhausted. And um, I know as of yesterday, when I talked to our single family director, it was over over 30 percent of the funding had been reserved. Um, that's reserved, not closed. So that that percentage will fluctuate a little bit because sometimes, um, you know, reservations are canceled. But um, very pleased. Um, again, the launch was February 10th. So we're very pleased um, at at how that has been going so far. And, and it is a pilot initiative. So, um, you know, the more successful it is, um, hopefully then we can make the case that that's an investment uh, worth continuing. Thank you. The, um, the ERA funds that originally came out, the, the vast majority went to the state of Iowa with Polk County being, I think, one of the only areas maybe that got their own block of, of funding. Um, it quickly became apparent that the Polk County money was going to be running out. And so, um, a few meetings, a few discussions with Treasury um, and Director Durham, whom I'm probably the number one fan in the fan club, um, was able to coordinate um, moving that funding from the state to Polk County. Um, the reality is that the, the rental that the uh, I guess maybe the depth of the rental um, issues across the state weren't quite as severe as the, you know, the focus in Polk County. So that was able to be done. So can you talk about um any other ERA plans for ERA funds or other home funds through the ARPA Act that might be coming down the pike? Sure. Uh, so we did. Um, so our agency, uh, like everybody else, has been really busy the last couple of years. Um, so between the CARES Act funding, which funded the Iowa the in 2020, which funded the Iowa eviction and foreclosure prevention program, and then the uh, emergency rental assistance, the ERA money, uh, which funded uh, IRAP starting in 2021. Um, 
our agency has uh, uh, awarded more than 63 million uh, and counting in rental assistance and uh, in, in partnership with our um, friends at Iowa Economic Development Authority, um, about 6 million in utility assistance. And so that's outside with IRAP, um, with the emergency rental assistance that's outside Polk County outside it was outside Lynn County for a while while they administered their own ERA2 funding we also um, voluntarily reallocated as Jenny mentioned 65 million in ERA1 funding to Polk County which we were happy to do um, and so uh, yeah been 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 a bit overwhelming but um, the uh, emergency rental assistance ERA1 funding that continues to remain open uh, federal rules that uh, funding has to be expended by September 30th. And then uh, with the ERA2 funding with the states uh, at the state level, we're focusing, choosing to focus that on uh, homeless households and vulnerable populations. Uh, for example, we have um, launched a, an, a uh, the, what we are calling the Iowa Rapid Rehousing Project, uh, a pilot initiative uh, that is uh, 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 $20 million for rapid rehousing, uh, plus an additional about $1.6 million to enhance the state's coordinated entry system. And it will be uh, the rapid rehousing dollars will be a more flex using a more flexible definition of the term homelessness than what is required under traditional rapid rehousing using the federal HUD McKinney-Vento Act definition. Uh, we will, our pilot initiative will allow um, uh, folks who are doubled up or couch surfing to qualify uh, as under the homeless definition and uh, to receive uh, rapid rehousing and housing stability services through our um, network of uh, rapid rehousing providers. And we think that's really important because especially in rural areas, um, that's how homelessness often manifests itself. It's, it's doubled up, it's couch surfing um, as opposed to in the car, on the street, uh, homeless in, in, in the way the federal definition contemplates or in a shelter. So um, so we're really excited about that pilot initiative uh, as well. And then uh, with the home ARP money, the, the home money that's coming to the state from the American Rescue uh, Plan Act, uh, the state will be receiving $29.5 million under home ARP. And uh, that funding will also has to be targeted uh, primarily to homelessness assistance and other vulnerable populations. Uh, so it's it's was put under the home program, but it's really, in my mind, very uh, it's it, the rules surrounding it are make it more similar to the National Housing Trust Fund because it's really focused on a, on the extremely low income and homeless population. Um, so that uh, that pro the first step in that home art process is uh, the state has to uh, adopt an allocation plan that has a lot of um, public input, public hearing requirements. And so uh, IFA has um, contracted with a consulting firm that's that's helping us with with that process but you will be seeing that uh that allocation plan uh and those um public input um opportunities coming your way over the next few months and i would really encourage everyone to participate in it uh the funding can uh has to be um is kind of narrowly has to be used for rental housing for qualified populations or shelter including non-congregate shelter tenant-based rental assistance and supportive services um so we really want to make sure um as jenny had mentioned earlier really a once-in-a-lifetime kind of funding opportunity to address the needs of of this pop these populations uh so we really um you know 
29.5 million, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot. I mean, in comparison, uh, we received traditionally $3 million a year from National Housing Trust Fund, which will be bumped up to, you know, 4.3 million this year. So um, it's a lot of money and we want to make sure it's as responsive to the actual needs in our communities as possible. So please do, um, when you see those opportunities to provide input on the plan, please do take advantage of them. Thank you, Terry. Well, Steve Eggleston, appreciate you stepping in at the literally last second. <laughs> um, Steve is the field office director for HUD here in Des Moines. Um, and, you know, Terry uh, was really going to focus on um, some Def definitional um, clarification on what housing vouchers are versus project-based, you know, assistance. So if you could help elaborate the differences that, that HUD um, designates for that, that voucher that um, folks could use in port anywhere versus project-based assistance, that would be great. Thank you. Um, first off, thank you, Eric, for allowing me to come up here and fill in. Terry has some big shoes and I'll do my best to fill them. Um, there's two types of subsidies that we fund as a U.S. executive federal branch, federal executive branch, housing choice vouchers or project based. Project based is a really simple concept. You take an apartment complex, you put an umbrella over it. All the units or whatever number of units that the contract says are going to be subsidized. Whoever lives in that unit gets the subsidy. In other words, they never pay more than 30 percent of their income. The rest is paid through HUD to that landlord. If a person leaves that unit, that subsidy stays under the umbrella. The other one that we uh, fund, and again, these funds come from Congress. When I say we, this comes from Congress taxpayer money. The housing choice voucher, the concept was simple. Instead of, if you ever heard of Cabrini Green in Chicago, it was a terrible idea in the 60s where they stacked a bunch of people um, and it was terrible and they eventually have torn it down. It took a lot of years. So instead of stacking people that have a lower income, they said, here's a piece of paper, or a voucher. You can go to any apartment, condo, home, single family home, town home that accepts that voucher and you will only have to pay 60%, 30% of your rent, excuse me. And the rest is paid by HUD through our subsidy. The key there is it allows flexibility to the, the person that has that voucher, if they want to live closer to their work is, if they need to be closer to some kind of transportation hub, this allows them to do that. If you live in Altoona and you get a new job in West Des Moines, you can port that. I'm sorry, let me give you a better example. From here to Waterloo, you can port that. In other words, take that voucher to Waterloo. The advantage is that flexibility. The um, It's important to note that Oak Ridge has been a, it's called a housing assistance program contract, a HAP contract. That's for all of the units with the umbrella. Oak Ridge has had a contract with HUD for over 50 years. They just celebrated that recently in the last year or so. And, and um, they do an amazing job. If you look at all, all of the activities, they're not just a landlord. And there is one quirk in the system. If you have a HAP contract, if you own an apartment complex, this happened 
in Des Moines, somebody had about 148, 140 units and they decided to opt out. They were at the end of their contract with HUD. HUD automatically gives a voucher to every one of those people in that facility. Thinking about it, everything you've heard today is that puts more pressure on the units that will accept the vouchers. And then you lose 140 some units. We have a program called 8BB that was used. 8BB has to do with the federal statute. And we can literally take that umbrella and set it on another piece of property, which is what we did. There was only about 140 units. So instead of keeping 140 subsidized units, we kept 140 and we gained 100 and approximately eight. So it's a wonderful program and it protects uh, that affordability that we like to keep in the community. Um, and then with the statewide change of, of not requiring landlords to accept the voucher as income, which is really what it comes down to, um, is there anything locally or have you ever seen anything happen or, or know of stories on, on a local basis where we basically um, offset that issue on a local level? Can it be done or is that? Well, like Mr. Smithberg, I have to be extremely, with the ethics okay. that I'm under, <laughs> I have to be extremely careful how I respond to that. Okay. And Sorry. the key here is states and local governments, states, local governments have the right to decide how they're going to manage that. The advantage is, and, 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 and I'm just going to say this as a piece of what I read in literature, it can be considered a disparate impact if you don't accept that as a form of income. Do I agree or disagree? I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going there. I'm going to let this gentleman down here deal with that. <laughs> Everything you've heard this morning talks about supply, talk about cost, talks about rates going up. Everything that makes it harder to use a voucher and more landlords, regardless of who they are, that choose not to take the voucher just puts a larger strain on the folks that need to use that to survive. Yeah. Um, and I do know Terry has some comments about basically the, the wait list to get a voucher that maybe one in four families who could qualify actually get it. Um, I used to know the numbers from Des Moines Public Housing on how long the wait list was, but it's substantial. Um, so the limitation on vouchers, um, that's a, I'm sure a legislative issue in terms of you know, funding and how many can be issued. So, but I appreciate you, Steve, for stepping in. Really, really do. So we're going to come back around with our final question. I haven't seen my card yet, but I'm, oh, I, yep, this is my last question. <laughs> what, look at that. Um, so we'll all get out of here on time. Um, so similar to the other panels, if you had one big idea um, that Greater Des Moines could do to ensure um, the public investment in housing um, and maybe swing it to subsidy, what would that be? If you had a wish list, yeah. Um, well, I think it's been talked about today. I think these projects are seeing bigger gaps than we've ever seen. We used to be able to pull a few things together and fill these gaps. We just talked about this in the audience. It's now getting to the point that we can't. And so we're going to have to reduce costs, but costs are going up. Interest rates are going up. It's just this um, awful cycle that we're in right now. And I think there is a way to hopefully work with our local governments to address the zoning and the code compliance issues that are driving up costs. It's been talked about today and it's a real thing. Um, being able to do the adaptive reuse that I've talked about, um, we're sitting in, in the middle of discussions right now that are not going to 
that will constrict the project from moving forward, quite frankly, if, if the zoning isn't changed. So I'm hopeful we can find a way to have alternative zoning or um, some type of zoning that allow a project to fast track and get these units on the market and have deferral agreements or something in place with these municipalities that say, not right now, but in five years, in 10 years, we will be able to meet these, let's just, these codes, but let's just get this housing stabilized in the market. So that's what I would hope we can come to terms with at some point in time. Um, otherwise, it's going to have to be more sourcing for upfront costs, the acquisition, asbestos abatement, right? All the environmental concerns that come with these with these sites um, and demo costs. So it's either going to have to be front-end sourcing that's going to lower uh, the risk for investors, or we're going to have to adjust the back end, which is the design and the construction costs. Okay, Lisa? Um, yeah. So I haven't run this by any of my higher ups. So if I say this and I get in trouble, I apologize. Safe zone, safe zone. I apologize to myself. Um, no. um, I think my biggest thing is I'd like to see affordable housing become more seamless in that um, people who need affordable housing are don't have a target on their back and that the design construction, so this is kind of opposite of maybe what's implied, um, the design construction and the implementation is the same as more expensive housing. Um, and that again, it doesn't put a target on someone's back because you can tell that's an affordable unit. Um, they're incorporated into the, the neighborhoods and the areas that are more affluent or have better access to, to different resources, better schools. So how do we either provide more direct home buyer assistance could be one way to buy down a mortgage so that someone who might not be able to afford it otherwise to live in this school district can now, um, whether that's providing more upfront subsidy to the construction aspect so that again, it's not, it's not the same old building that, you know, everyone's going to identify as the affordable units, um, that helping, helping with the construction standards, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of other tools, but I think that's that's the overall theme is making affordable housing seamless so that it's not obvious that someone needs <coughs> that help. Thank you. Um, so I think the one thing I would say would be don't let a vocal minority of housing opposition impede affordable housing progress in your communities. Um, IFA and IEDA recently completed some research uh, uh, in the state that found that 72% of Iowans support housing development in their communities. I'm guessing a lot of you um, who've attended some city council meetings um, would not have guessed that 72% of the residents actually would, would say that they support housing development. Um, so despite that, you know, majority of Iowans being supportive, uh, the research also found that housing acquisition uh, stops, has stopped nearly one in three housing tax credit developments across the state and significantly changes another one in four projects. So um, I think Rachel's uh, had her, what do you believe in? Uh, put it much more eloquently than, than I'm going to be doing here, but I would, I would really, I, I think that's the question. Uh, and uh, IFA has launched the new Welcome Home Iowa uh, website and initiative. So I would really urge everyone to kind of log on. It's welcomehomeia.com. 
Um, you can you can stand up for what you believe in. You can log your support. Um, there's a nice map showing how many um, Iowans have, have registered and um, logged their support for housing development in our state. Um, there's also a new um, uh, a guide that's been published that uh, talks about rebranding re affordable housing um, instead of affordable housing. It's it's simply housing uh, and uh, a, a, some uh, really good information about how to engage in community conversations in a positive uh, in a positive way and a, a lot more about the research that I mentioned. So um, I'd urge all of you to, to take a look at Welcome Home Iowa if you haven't had a chance to do so. Thank you, Steve. Do you have a one big idea? One big idea. And, and be, again, because of ethics, instead of talking about Des Moines, I'm just going to say this in general across the state. I would ask that community leaders consider mixed income as a positive step in producing reasonably priced housing. When you take an entire building and you say this is low income, right there you have a stigma. As Mr. Phillips will probably agree, there are stacks of literature, especially a nice book out of New Jersey that talks about how they integrated mixed income into properties and in the end result was there was an acclimation that you couldn't tell the difference if somebody made 600,000 or if somebody made 50,000. So I would, I would suggest across the state that the mixed income concept be considered. Totally agree. And I, it really wasn't a question for me, but I got one anyway. So <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize when I agreed to go on IFA's board um, that it was a six year term. So I've got five years left to get my state housing tax credit pulled off. <laughs> so I, I know that's going to be a challenge. I know we hit a no, um, but and I know the tax law change happened. But I still think if we don't come up with new ways to generate funding, the costs aren't going to come down enough. Um, and if they continue to escalate, we've got to have that additional gap tool in our toolbox. So my state housing tax credit someday. I'm going to keep pushing. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Trust Fund. Thanks for listening to this episode of Safe, Stable, and Affordable. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave a rating or a review to help more people discover this program. In our next episode, author Shane Phillips will be back to answer audience questions that came up in the symposium event in a special bonus episode. We look forward to that conversation. Safe, Stable, and Affordable is produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Find more information about our work on our website at pchtf.org.